You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. The commodity supercycle to me is happening in Bitcoin. The world is going, going digital. Um, I've been on live TV. One of the anchors said, well, Mike, you're a Bitcoin bull. And I like to kind of, well, no, I'm just been right. And so far... Thank you for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. And in today's show, you'll be hearing from Bloomberg commodity strategist, Mike McGloon. And Mike, welcome to the show. Uh, you cover commodities. You've been at this for many decades. So you know all things there is in terms of commodity investing and analyzing the markets. And I wanted to begin by getting your take on whether we're going to see a commodity super cycle or not. I've been reading several articles over the last six months. There are the pros and many in the mining industry that believes we are facing a commodity super cycle, a once in a lifetime opportunity, some have said. But then there are others that say the jury is still out. What would be your take on this? Good luck with that one. <laughs> that's like when everybody agrees on something, you know that's a problem. But I enjoy, um, thanks for having me, Bill. Enjoy getting to know you a little bit. I started in the business at the Chicago Board of Trade. Being a Southsider, we went to the Board of Trade. Northsiders went to the Merck. Um, but I like to say good luck with that. Let's first start with the prerequisites. I think was bottom line, the answer I think is we might have potential for that in metals. Um, number one, they're easiest to store, easier than, uh, easiest to invest in. But I view metals now, no, most notably gold, as somewhat naked, if not including this new digital metal called Bitcoin. And the reason I say that is because we have a major shift, paradigm shift going on in this world economy, and that is towards decarbonization, green energy, electrification, and digitalization. And the supply-demand balance for fossil fuels for crude oil was bad before COVID, and it's worse now, i.e. Uh, elasticity of supply is just off the charts. I mean, we have, in this country now, we just bottom, we just dropped to near the lowest level of cost of production in our database of $39 a barrel, and crude oil popped up to near 66. So you know what's happening. There's been plenty of producer hedging, so massive supply coming on in fossil fuels. And demands is not going to be there the way it used to be. They're being replaced by technology, which means demand for metals. So I look at that's the key problem is you need uh, for the old guard commodity super cycle, you need the world's most significant commodity crude oil to rally. And that's unlikely. Um, you need a weak dollar. And that's unlikely, partly because the key drivers of the dollar the last decade that kept the dollar strong are still in place, i.e., U.S. yields are relatively higher than the rest of the world, and the U.S. stock market is probably stronger than the rest of the world. So I view the market more in a significant deflationary spiral being offset by um, uh, uh, central bank easing, and a lot of that's because of innovation. Even if we don't see oil uh, driving a commodity super, super cycle, could we see copper, new metals step up, nickel, these electrical vehicle revolution battery metals? Well, that's where you have to go for this super cycle. Let's look, for, let's look back and forward. Back to the last 10, 20 years, metals have way outperformed energy in no, most notable in terms of total returns if you're an indexer and in spot returns. And looking forward, where should we see the demand? So I look at, in fact, I'm, I'm publishing my commodity outlook for April, and I see pretty good resistance in crude oil bumping up in their 70, more likely to go near 50 in WTI. And copper, let's use, um, you know, copper, let's use the, the, the LME measure near $9,000 a ton, you know, just got to the highest level in 10 years, and it's near the upper end of the range. I see demand for that, but 
um, there's very, the correlation between copper and crude oil is still very high. On a 20-month basis, it's about 0.8 on a one-to-one -one scale, so it's very high. Yet we're seeing a breakout higher in industrial metals. I, I see that. I just near the upper end of the range and want to be the first buyer. I fully expect to see a decent support in copper near $8,000 a ton. Um, but I'm really kind of finding a little dicey at these levels um, to be a first buyer. But I do think bigger picture looking forward next two, three, maybe 10 years is metals are have much greater appreciation. Um, and it's just the one thing you mentioned, nickel. I am a macro commodity strategist. I really focus on the macro. We have a metals team, most notably based in London. And they point out to me that nickel supply is very easy to bring on. And it's still way oversupplied. I think the peak in nickel was around $40,000 a ton. And here we are at 16. So yeah, energy, electricity, metal, sure, which means silver. Mm -hmm. Your near-term outlook for copper then, it's not going to bust through what we, the highs we've seen recently. Is that fair to say? I look at conversions a greater risk. So I'm near-term, just don't want to be the first buyer. And when it finally broke above 7,000, looked at it as pretty good. But now at 9,000 and backing away from, I think it peaked around 9,300, which was around the, the high. The high was around 10,000 from 2011-12. But uh, near-term, no. Not a, you want to be very careful here, particularly if we see a continued reversion towards $50 a barrel in crude oil. Because there's that high correlation. There's that drag from crude oil. They're the two significant macroeconomic commodities, um, but it, they have been diverging in terms of performance. Copper's been doing better. Crude oil, bigger picture, just can't get above those. Remember, the high in crude oil was 145, and here we are at 60. Um, but the key thing I want to bring in as we transition is when you think commodity super, super cycles and overall commodities, look to natural gas. It's the most U.S. natural gas, the benchmark that trades on the CME is the world's benchmark, significant measure of electricity, production, and heat. And it's still down 90% 90, 90 from the highs. It's running 2.5, 2.4 or so um, MMBTUs, and the peak was around 15. Um, and there was just, you know, the whole world, there's massive demand for it, yet there's just so much supply in the back of innovation. So then obviously you're, you're projecting less demand for oil and gas over the next decade. And I would assume that when you look at that and you conclude that, you're analyzing the political situation in the world, aren't you, when you come oh, to that conclusion? Because you're looking at policies that's going to drive that. Oh, political and economic and natural. There is a major shift towards EVs, um, and it's accelerating. And I had the honor of interviewing Kathy Wood recently on our um, – we had a Bloomberg Crypto Summit – and um, her quote was, the average EV cost in this country will drop to $18,000 per vehicle in about five years. Now, I bought an EV uh, six years ago. I, I bought a Volt and I paid 36 with subsidies. I got it for 29 But that's just normal progression, declining costs of uh, most notably the batteries. It just, unless you expect that to reverse, that's a trend that's accelerating. And then for those of us who've been to China and know, and we all don't have to go there to understand you can't breathe. There's a major trend towards, you know, the people used to say, oh, they're, you know, get everybody in China, get an automobile. They're not, they're getting EVs and they're getting them cheap and they're becoming cheaper and cheaper. Yes, they do uh, use some coal to produce electricity. That's another whole story, but that's a key trend that's accelerating. And then I also, so that's both sides. Demand for for transportation vehicles is declining. In addition, we have this major shift towards um, more flexible work schedules, most notable in this country, and people just aren't driving. I'm, I'm, you can see in the background of my offices, there's no one here. <laughs> like, this is, in my section, there's 100 people. They're just not coming back. It's shocking. Um, and they're just getting up from their bed, 
going to the office and walking back to the bed. It's what 15 steps. It's just they're not driving in a car 50 miles or taking a subway or train or anything. So that's that's a shift globally that's really changed. So before the key thing I want to end in is is incremental demand. Demand for liquid fuels in this country is about the same as it was 20 years ago, around 20 million barrels a day. 20 years ago, that's basically unheard of economically. It's most notably because of more efficiency, not really EVs. Um, yet total supply of liquid fuels in this country and GDP have both increased about 100% over that 20-year period. Where do you stand on the inflation, deflation, stagflation debate? The I think when we write the textbooks about this period in history, the market's going to look at it as one of the most significant deflationary periods in history. And that's part of where, as much as our listeners and viewers might poo-poo central banks, they're just reacting to what I see as significant deflationary trends on the back of innovation. So here's one example. I, I, you know, I, I live in Connecticut, and when I take the train, I take an airplane, I cross the Whitestone Bridge. And um, two years ago, there was maybe an average of 100 people manning those tobus. Poof, now it's zero. They're gone. I used to work at Chicago Board of Trade. Poof, it's gone. Um, I used to be a voice broker. Poof, they're gone. I mean, this is just happening rapidly. Now, in terms of commodities, more and more supply of liquid fuels. I, I used to own a farm, and a lot of that, that corn is used for ethanol. That's becoming more and more efficient. More and more technology, pressuring prices for things like that, and reducing demand, most notably. We're, we're shifting, we're, we're, you know, um, the demand for fossil fuels is being replaced by technology and metals. So I view it as deflationary central banks catching up. And I think that's the key thing I want to leave with is I think the headline for my, my month's outlook for commodities is bullish commodities, broad commodities and inflation is bearish innovation. People are missing that fact about what's happening in the society. I.e. I mentioned the average cost of production for U.S. crude oil has dropped to $39 a barrel. And on the screens right now, I see about $60, $61. How would you explain it to just the average Joe citizen that says, uh, my, my grocery bill is going up. Even when I buy lumber to do a little project around the house, it seems like it's twice as what it was five years ago. What would be your answer there? Lumber is a key, um, uh, um, I would say, outlier, and it's a good point, Bill. Um, Lumber's near all-time highs, most notably because it's a significant building boom. And why are we having this building boom? Because people are shifting from the cities to the suburbs, and they're not driving as much. So, <laughs> and bus, by the way, lumber is a great... Um, indicator but it's very insignificant in terms of any it's not in any of the broad indices it's not widely traded in futures and a scale one to ten versus crude oil it's basically a one in significance and crude oil is a ten um, but you need to buy a house you need the lumber that makes sense i get that uh, the more significant inflation is really in financial assets which you would expect in a world that is focused is really based on negative rates massive fiscal stimulus um, and very low interest rates and um, quantitative easing. Now, why are we doing that? Because um, we have to, because <laughs> you know, things are declining. Why? And if we didn't do that, where would prices be? They'd be plunging. Um, so we're seeing price advances and most notably financial assets. And I think what I see happening going forward is financial assets, particularly stock markets getting very expensive. Total market cap to GDP is very high, the highest ever, basically. Yet housing and residential homes are just catching up. They're still quite low relative to GDP. So I see that shift coming. And of course, we have the lowest interest rates in the history of mankind are kind of helping. 
Mm -hmm. Mike, I've heard you talk uh, and give very bullish numbers on Bitcoin. Would that be the thing you're most bullish on right now? So yeah, Greg, I'm, I'm, Bill, I'm glad you brought that in because I forgot to mention that the commodity super cycle to me is happening in Bitcoin. The world is going, going digital. Um, I've been on live TV, one of the anchors said, well, Mike, you're a Bitcoin bull. And I like to kind of, well, no, I'm just been right. And so far. And what I see happening there is first, let's start with the problem itself. Never in the history of mankind have humans been able to store, transact, transmit, and transport a store of value that trades 24-7 easily and um, on, on like a thumb drive. That's not happening. We've had gold, but it's difficult to transport, transact, and you still got to verify it. This is happening. Um, and it's happened organically. It's not something that it's the liability or the project of um, a government or an entity like gold. It's, some, it's an organic, it's not liability, it's not a currency. So um, as much as people want to poo-poo it, um, the fact that the world's largest automaker by market cap Tesla is starting to allocate part of its equity wealth to Bitcoin. To me, that's part of the paradigm shift that just kicked in about a month ago in the world. And it's just a falling domino situation right now. So I'll end on this is the number, the, any uh, investor on the planet who has 100 units of any type of assets, most notably gold, but any types of 100 units, knows now that if they don't allocate at least one or two of those units to Bitcoin, they're at greater risk of this digital global reserve asset, just continue to do what it's been doing, becoming the world's benchmark digital global reserve asset, and it could fail. But if they don't allocate, who cares about one and two percent of portfolio? But if it continues to do what it's doing, which is well on the pace and it's got a plenty of upside, then um, they won't get fired. And if so, they don't, they could be fired. So in 10 years, does Bitcoin make gold obsolete? What's gold's role in the future of the economy? <laughs> So that's the key thing. The fact is right now, the pace of flows out of gold ETFs and into Bitcoin funds is clearly indicating that gold is becoming redundant. Now it's a question of duration. So I clearly see those trends accelerating. And the way I look at it is now, I think every entity on the planet realizes, like I mentioned earlier, if you don't allocate some of that gold wealth to Bitcoin, you're at greater risk. That should continue. And what has to happen is something has to trip up this Bitcoin trend, which I don't anticipate and I don't expect. Or the way I look at it is holding gold without having some Bitcoin in that same bucket is basically naked. It appears as naked. And I think that's the key thing that really kicked in Q4 last year. It's now gold's down 9% or so in the year. Bitcoin's up almost 100%. I don't see what's going to stop that trend. I'm not bearish gold, but I'm no longer bullish like it, like I was when it went from 1,000 to 2,000 and didn't catch the bottom, didn't catch the top. But I just can't see the upside right now because one key support for gold is gone at the moment. That was investors. Exchange, um, exchange traded fund inflows have switched to outflows significantly. And I think it's because everybody sees that, yes, I have maybe too much gold and too little Bitcoin if the trends just continue. So do you think it's not just futurists that are moving into Bitcoin, but it's actually the fear trade, people that are trying to preserve wealth that are moving into Bitcoin right now? It, well, at, at the moment, it's not a think, it's a fact. Um, let's look at um, Tesla, let's look at MicroStrategy, um, and of course, a lot of billionaires and hedge funds. Um, um, you, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, you name it, it's, you name it on the list. Now, I think what's happening is the naysayers are dropping like flies because they realize they're kind of starting to look like um, people who rejected the internet when it first came out or 
electricity when it first started proliferating in in uh, in New York City initially. So um, I, I think that's one of those key things I like. I think is most important about what I do is not so much analyzing markets and trends and trying to interpret markets, but it's human nature. And that's where I figure the, the most prudent investors on the planet are all be, to understand that if they don't allocate some to this space of Bitcoin, they're at greater risk. So to me, that's what's happening. And at least more recent, I heard of sovereign wealth funds. And I think it's inevitable that central banks will have to buy it, partly because they're some of the biggest buyers and holders of gold. And you know, I've held some of these bars down at the Federal Reserve Bank and got to see the gold down there. And it's you know biggest stash on the planet, not just for US, but help for other central banks. And there is a sense that's becoming somewhat redundant. There is a risk that we might look back at this period from 10 or 100 years from now and like that, you know, some that there was a Twilight Zone episode I remember I love from the 60s that predicted 50 years, years ahead, gold would become um, worthless. Oh, wow. Interesting. I haven't seen that one. Uh, last question. Uh, Suez Canal, it's blocked right now with that big container ship. Uh, what's the significance of that from an, a macroeconomic and commodities perspective? Um, very little. Let's start with crude oil. Very little. It's most notably a blip in the trend. Um, it might spike prices in the short term, but the bottom line we have to ask ourselves is, is it increasing demand or reducing supply in the big picture? No, in fact, it's doing the opposite. So what it's actually doing is similar to the spike in prices we had when Saudi oil assets were attacked in 2019 and the spike we just had recently when uh, we had a deep freeze in Texas. It's allowing producers, producers to hedge forward in futures, and I'm, that's showing up commercial hedging in crude oil is reached almost the highest level from 2018. And as you're commercial, you don't hedge, you don't sell short unless you've got supply coming on, unless you expect it. So right now, it's just what OPEC has done to themselves. They created an artificial high price, which with normal economics is allowing regular producers with advancing technology to produce at a greater greater level. And that's why I like to rope in, um, thank you in the short term. It's, I'm sorry, and it's, it's discombob discombobulating in the short term but it only makes it worse for those existing trends. And that's the key bottom line for crude oil is um, too much elasticity of supply and slack um, and slack demand that's only accelerating. Mike, for listeners that want to stay abreast of your work, where would they find you? I'm on LinkedIn, happy to LinkedIn with people. And I interact most on there. I do, I am on Twitter, um, but I just don't uh, react too much. I post my stuff and I have these, some followers, but I just don't have time to really, mostly LinkedIn. So happy to, and, and if someone wants to be on our list, they can just link in with me and I can put them on my dist, distribution list. Mike, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for joining me today. Bill, thanks for having me and looking forward to uh, speaking with you again. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant 
with that. If you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors, and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.